Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. I am the Bill Arnold part of that creative short sentence. I'm so glad to have back on the program Jared Brock. I had him on a couple weeks ago, and we talked about his book, A God Named Josh, Uncovering the Human Life of Jesus Christ. And the more I thought about it, the more interested I got in it, the more I found myself picking up his book and going through it. And then I started to see comments from other listeners that said, what was that book again about Josh? And I thought, well, you know what? We can talk to Jared a little bit more and do some more digging because the topic is very interesting, talking about the human life of Jesus Christ. We uh, have no problem focusing on the divine part of his life, but the human part gets a little bit tricky at times. So, uh, Jared, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Bill. Yeah. So, you know, when I think about the, the name Jesus, which is the most precious name to me in my life, but I would have no problem calling him in his original Hebrew name or Aramaic name. Why did we end up getting to Jesus through the translators? Yeah. So like, I mean, it's simply just a matter of translating it into English. Jesus' real name was Yehoshua ben Yehoseph, which means Joshua, son of Joseph. Um, Joshua was the sixth most common name at the time Jesus was alive. So he wasn't the top dog. Mm-hmm. Uh, that belongs to the name Simon. He actually has two disciples named Simon. But when we translated the Bible, it went from Yehoshua to uh, Yeshua in Aramaic. Jesus's daily tongue was Aramaic. So yep. one of the nicknames actually is Yeshu. So his siblings may have called him Yesh or Yeshu. Uh. Um, and then we <laughs> we that. went to Jesus in Latin and Greek and then we transliterated that to Jesus in English. So, yeah, like, I mean, he's Jesus. He's a graceful guy. He wouldn't be furious at us for calling him Jesus. But uh, but maybe childhood Josh would be a bit confused as to why we were calling him Jesus when his name is Josh. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't think we have any problem. I wouldn't have any problem calling him by any name he wants. Uh, yeah. So Yeshua, I love, I love Yeshua. That's beautiful. But we don't call him Yeshua anymore. The, the Jewish people do. The Messianic Jews refer to him that way, but uh, we don't. I would love to see our Bibles translate certain words, just straight up use them. Like, I would love to replace Jesus with Ye- with Yehoshua. I'd love to see God's name be replaced with Y-H-W-H, like mm-hmm. Yahweh again. Yes. Um, I'd love fellowship and sharing to be replaced with koinonia, which is a way more intense word. Oh, yeah. There's, there's a number of words like that that I would love us to just go back to the original uh, Greek and Hebrew because we just don't pack the same verbal punch in English. Yeah, we don't, and I, I would love that as well. So your, your book is uh, A God Named Josh, and I, I know there's some people kind of going, whoa, 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 what's, what's Jared talking about? And is he being disrespectful? And I, I really appreciated that you, you laid that out the first time we spoke, um, talking about uh, how he uh, started with his name in Hebrew and it evolved into Aramaic and then into Latin and then into, what is it, into Greek and then into English? Or what's the order yeah. again? Did I say that so, right? Yeah, uh, Hebrew, Aramaic, 
And then it goes into Greek, into Latin, into English. So through the Greeks, through the Romans, to us today. Okay. So, um, I, I, you know, I assume like, like anybody growing up in any family, you're also going to have, uh, you know, nicknames and mm -hmm. Josh being such a, uh, a popular name of the day. Um, and you talk about some of the different variations of it. It's just fun to think about. It's, it's, uh, it's just kind of entertaining in my mind. Yeah, Jesus is a big nickname, dude. Uh, this is something that comes through if you read the Bible closely. So Jesus has four brothers named in the Bible as well. He has at least three sisters as well. So he's from a family of at least eight kids. And um, he also has disciples who have the same names. So he's got um, he's got six disciples that their names are, are James, James, Judas, Judas, Simon, Simon. So he's already got half of his disciples are, are sharing names. And so to differentiate them, they kind of give them all nicknames. So Simon becomes Peter, which means Rocky. I don't mm -hmm. know if he was like muscular or something. Petros in Greek, Cephas in, in Aramaic. So he's he's Rocky. And uh, one of the Jameses, uh, him and his brother John become known as um, Thunder Sons. Like, I don't know if they're loud or if their dad is loud or what, but they become the Thunder Sons. And uh you know, Judas, he gets to be called Judas Iscariot. The other poor Judas gets nicknamed like Thaddeus. Like he just gets a totally different name. Um, and this happens with a lot of Jesus's disciples. He just kind of nicknames them. Another one uh, in scripture, Mary Magdalene. People think that her name is first name Mary, last name Magdalene. Right. But it's actually not. It's like her name is Miriam in Hebrew and mm -hmm. Magdala is the town she's from. So when they call her Magdalene, they're basically calling her Maggie. Like they're, they're giving her nickname, like the girl from Magdala. So <laughs> he, he does this a lot. Cause you got to remember there are four Marys in Jesus's life. So he, he needs to, okay, one I'll call mom, one I'll call Maggie. One I'll call. <laughs> oh my word. Yeah. So Jared, let's go back to a little uh, prophecy. Isaiah prophecies says that his name shall be Emmanuel. Mm -hmm. How do we reckon all that? Yeah, like, I mean, Jesus has so many names in the same way that God has so many names. It's really hard to limit a God to just one name. So, you know, he's got this human name, Yehoshua ben Yehoshua, but he is also Emmanuel, which means God with us, right? He is he is God enfleshed. He is fully man and fully God. He's the son of God and God the son. And so he's he is in once in, in a human sense, he's got one name. In a spiritual sense, he has potentially unlimited names. And we know a bunch of them, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Rapha. We mm -hmm. got a bunch of names for, you know, God as provider, God as protector, God as Lord, God as, and that's, that's the beauty of scripture is that imagine if God only gave us one metaphor for our relationship with him. Like if he was just like, I am your father. Okay. So that works for me, but like that doesn't work for Luke Skywalker, right? It doesn't work for people who were abused by their dad. Right. It, it, that's a really bad metaphor. Uh, I, I live in Wales Imagine if the only metaphor was that God is the shepherd. Okay, so in Wales, that makes perfect sense. There's more sheep than people. You know, we've got multiple people in our church who are sheep farmers. We get it. But for everyone else who's never been to a sheep farm, doesn't know anything about shepherding, that metaphor is kind of lost. And that's the beauty of the Bible is like, God is the vine. We are the branches. Mm -hmm. You know, God is, Jesus is the cornerstone and we are build, being built up as a holy building, a holy temple. There's so many different metaphors that are just giving us a glimpse of what our relationship with Jesus is to be like. We are to abide in him. You know, we are, it's, I, I just love that, that, that it's not just one thing. And, and his name is, his name reflects that too. He is Emmanuel. He is Yehoshua. He is Jehovah. He is Yahweh. 
um, he can't be contained. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about Mary from Magdala or Judas from Iscariot, um, would Jesus have had a name similar to Jesus, son of Joseph the Nazarene? Um, like, I mean, some people just call him the Nazarene. Okay. Like that's in scripture. There's, yeah. there's still a, um, there's still a denomination called the Nazarenes, um, not to be confused with the Nazarites, which was a vow where you didn't cut your hair and didn't drink booze. Um, Jesus was not a Nazarite. He was a Nazarene. Um, but he, he also gets called rabbi a lot, like teacher. Yeah. yeah. That's the general, you know, when Mary from Magdala, the first person to see him alive, uh, when she sees him, she doesn't go, Jesus, Yehoshua. She says, Rabboni. It's, mm-hmm. The Aramaic actually breaks through into the English text. Rabboni, teacher. That's the, that, that is the primary identity through which Maggie sees Josh is as her teacher. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, he's Jesus has uh, all sorts of all sorts of ways to label him. Mm-hmm. And Jared, what about when you would see something like Jesus bar Joseph? Now, was that a way that they would refer to the given name followed by their father's name? Yeah, exactly. So like Osama bin Laden is Osama son of Laden. Uh, and then, you know, we've, we've all seen the movie Ben-Hur. Yeah. Um, I forget what the guy's first name actually was, but uh, it's like loosely based on a real, a real chariot tier. So, uh, you know, son of her. And so, um, Jesus uh, would have been Yehoshua ben Yehosef, but really, if you really think about it, he's Yehoshua ben Yahweh. He's Jesus, the Son of God. Yeah. Um, he takes on the genealogical line of Joseph, but it is interesting that in a very male-dominant culture, the New Testament writers actually include Joseph's line and Mary's line. Like he's a double bloodline king candidate, yeah. son of David. Like they are proving that this man has got bona fides on both sides. It's really interesting. Like they're proving the human case for him as king of Israel and the heavenly case for him as king of all creation. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite moments in all of scripture is in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is arrested and he identifies um, himself as Jesus. And but he says, uh, I am. He also said that, and it caused everyone to fall backwards. Uh, pretty powerful, and because they knew that who they had just um, come in contact with. Yeah, that's an interesting scene. So the House of Annas, this wicked crime family, they send some treasury guards, potentially also with some Roman soldiers, and they go to arrest Jesus in the garden. It says that he's sleeping there with his disciples. There could be upwards of seventy-two people there, men and women, uh, and it's a crazy scene. Like. Peter has a sword, potentially one other person has a sword as well. And they come at, at night, like it's dark. And I've been to the garden of Gethsemane. It's still pretty dark. And uh, they've got these torches and they're like, where's Jesus? They're trying to identify him. And he like steps forward while the rest of his disciples are kind of rousing from their slumber. And then things get pretty crazy pretty quickly. Like Peter takes a swing, chops off a dude's ear. The guy's name is Malchus. And uh, then Jesus heals him. Um, But it also says that one of the disciples uh, they try to seize him and and he like runs and it actually like rips his clothes off yeah. and he runs away naked. You're yeah. like, how did that make it into the Bible? It's uh. so weird. Like, <laughs> And there's no follow up. We don't know who the dude is. Like, we think it might be John Mark because like, he's right. Doing right but like, it's just a really strange story. Like, the Bible is weird. I like it. No, it's it's the best. Now, when we talk about the prosecution of Jesus um, and you had a reference to sort of one little um, mafia family that was mostly responsible. And I know that was covered in the first interview, but for those who might've missed that, I would love Jared Brock, if you would go over that again a little bit, because I found that so interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Jesus tells a parable 
about this guy named Lazarus who dies and and uh, the, it, there's a st- and he basically has this interaction uh, with there's this other guy who dies and he goes to hell basically Hades and he he cries out to Lazarus he's like please go tell my father I have five brothers they don't believe in the resurrection they didn't listen to the prophets uh, please go and tell them that that like heaven and hell are real like tell them to repent and uh, if you actually understand the historical context there. Jesus is making a barely veiled reference to this crime family who runs the Jerusalem temple called the house of Annas. So it is a house with a father named Annas ben Sethi. He's got five sons who all become high priests, as well as a son-in-law named Joseph Caiaphas, who is the high priest officially while Jesus is, um, well, when Jesus is executed. And this crime family basically rules the temple mount. They've jacked up the price of sacrificial animals 20-fold. They are forcing people to pay their temple tax annually as opposed to once a lifetime. They're forcing them to pay using the Tyrian shekel, which actually has an image of Baal on it and and Hercules. And it says like that Tyre is the holy city and that Baal is like the son of God. Like it's like it's a mess. Like they're forcing Jewish faithful to like participate in interest and usury and 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 like using like forbidden coins to pay their temple tax and. And so Jesus does not like this, and he goes into their temple, and the historical accounts say that the booths are called the booths of the sons of Annas, and he basically shuts down their temple trade on their busiest week of the year, Passover. And the house of Annas does not like this, because they need to make money that week, because they have to pay off Pilate so they can keep in power of the of the uh, Jerusalem temple. So the Bible says that from the moment Jesus drives out their money changers and and their corrupt stalls that they immediately seek a way to kill him. They immediately go trying to find witnesses, trying to find an insider. They eventually find Judas Iscariot and they're trying to find a way that they can, first of all, frame this guy and then get him killed by the Romans. They no longer have the power to kill. Um, They have to take it to the Romans. And so they have to create a case that is compelling to a Roman ear. Now, a lot of people think that Jesus was killed because he was the son of God. But that is not what the gospel writers write. They write that he is killed because the house of Annas claims he is the king of the Jews. He is setting himself up as a rival to Caesar. And Pilate cannot have that. His job is to maintain the Roman peace, the Pact Romana. And so he is basically forced by the house of Annas to kill Jesus. They are a bad, bad family. Mm-hmm. They actually, um, Judas, they pay him 30 Tyrian silver shekels uh, for, for turning in Jesus. Um, but then when, when Judas has a change of heart and regrets that decision that he's betrayed an innocent man, he returns the money to them. And the house of Annas actually puts out this story that, oh, we're going to use the money to buy a field so that we can bury poor foreigners in it. But history tells another story. The field is called Alcadema. It means the field of blood. And it is home to the poshest tombs in ancient Israel, including one that they believe is the Annas family tomb. It's decorated just like oh. the like the Temple Mount. And uh, we found Caiaphas's tomb a little further south. So like it really is the field of blood. Like these guys were liars to the end. Like no. yeah, they were not good. All right. Let me take a little break. Jared Brock is my guest. His book is called A God Named Josh, Uncovering the Human Life of Jesus Christ. We'll be right back.
I'm back with Jared Brock. His book is A God Named Josh, Uncovering the Human Life of Jesus Christ. I found this book fascinating, so I thought, well, let's have Jared back on again. There's lots more I wanted to talk to him. We ran out of time the first time he was on. Jared, in Chapter 5, you <clears throat> talk about Jesus' family connections. Would you say more about how interconnected his followers and his family were? Yeah, so this is this is something, you know, we get this sense if you read the Bible, just kind of skim the New Testament, that Jesus is like walking down the beach on the Sea of Galilee one day, and he's just like, I'll take that guy's as a disciple. I'll take that guy's as a disciple. I'll take that guy's as a disciple. But it that's just not the reality if you actually study what's going on in the text here. So, for example, uh, Peter is always listed first in the list of disciples, but he's actually not the first disciple that Jesus recruits. He's always listed first because he's kind of the ringleader. He's he's the loudest, the, the, the most powerful kind of guy. Judas is always mentioned last for obvious reason. He's going to be the traitor. Um, but he actually, there's a couple of disciples before uh, Peter gets recruited. Um, John and Andrew actually uh, are likely disciples of John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist says, hey, here's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. They're like, all right, bye, John. And they follow Jesus. Yeah. And then some of them actually recruit others. So there's a couple of stories like Nathaniel, for instance, um, uh, gets recruited um, by other disciples. Um, the other interesting thing is that for the female disciples, some of them are actually related to Jesus. So um, the, the Bible says, the gospel writers all mention that at the foot of the cross, when all the other disciples have abandoned Jesus, that there are five disciples left. There's John and there's four women. And uh, if you cross-reference the New Testament, uh, all the, the four gospel writers, you realize that one of those women is Salome, or Salome, and that's actually Jesus' aunt. Another one is Jesus' mom. Mm -hmm. And the Bible says, and then and then Mary, uh, wife of, um, I believe it's Cephas, and they, uh, the, the Bible says that they have been following Jesus since the days of John the Baptist. And so they've been disciples. Some of the female disciples have been disciples longer than, than the inner 12 apostles were disciples. Very, very long, faithful ministry to, to their king and rabbi. And so Jesus is actually, you know, he's surrounded by likely 72 people, a bunch of women. They're probably, the, the men are probably much younger than we realize. And they're also being supported by their moms and their aunts. A third of their moms and aunts are, are with mm -hmm. them. Which I think is really funny, and it, but it just shows you that Jesus is a relational God, right? He's he he he's with people. A couple of them are business partners. Um, they stay at Peter's house. Um, they they have parties at Matthew's house. Like he's he's intensely relational. I love that. So in your book, a God named Josh, uncovering the human life of Jesus Christ, you do talk about the the uh, the money side of of Jesus Josh um and you say that that um he will he'll challenge any believer to think about how we use our money yeah like i mean the the one that people always go to is the story of the rich young ruler where jesus says if you want to be perfect go sell everything and give to the poor okay so that's jesus's definition of economic perfection so then it's simply a matter of where are we on the scale so if if that's perfect, then the opposite of perfect is keeping everything we have and not helping the poor. So where where are we on that scale? Now, it is important to remember that Jesus, sure, he says that to the rich young ruler, but he also, that's a universal command. He says it to a huge group in another 
part of the Gospels. He says, sell everything, give to the poor. So we have lots of work to do. He, In Jesus's mind, money is a rival God. He calls it mammon. That's the word he uses. He, he actually wow. personifies money as, as, a, as, a, as a worship that we offer. And we either have to love God or hate money or vice versa. The, the two, it's like oil and water. They do not mix. And so we really, as Christians, need to see money as a tool, as a, like, we need to treat it like a, we need to enslave it to the cause of Christ, because otherwise it will absolutely ruin our lives. Mm-hmm. When you talk about um, God or Jesus being so relational, um, when people were following, started to follow him, you know, when you see it in movies, it looks like they, they, they walk away from their job at hand and start following him. But over time, they had to figure out exactly who they were following. I mean, they didn't know at the beginning, did they? Mm, like, I mean, even they're still asking him, like, the day before he's going to be crucified, like, will now you usher in the kingdom of God? Like, they're still <laughs> very fuzzy on what the yeah. kingdom of God is. Like, are you calling on the chariots now? Like, I honestly think, Bill, that the reason Judas returned that money to the house of Annas was he thought he was going to spark the rebellion that would lead to the overthrow of the Romans. And he was going to be the treasurer. He was going to oh, be the new house of Venice. And he just all of a sudden realized, Oh, Jesus is a lot more spiritual than I thought. And he's now not the physical King. He did, you know, Judas doesn't live to witness the resurrection, sadly. So he, he didn't get to see act three, but um, I, I think he was just so full of regret and remorse um, that he was only thinking in earthly terms about the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. So when we study the, his life and we go from studying his, his day-to-day journey and right to the, the resurrection and the ascension into heaven, when we study his life and look at the way in which he talked to people, treated people, made time for people, reached out to people, we see the, the, the human side, which does require energy and um, you know, sometimes I w- will not make the, always the best choice when it comes to making time for people. Cause I'll say to myself, I'm just too tired. You know, I'll, I'll reschedule. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems like Jesus was tireless, uh, meeting the needs of people. <laughs> well, that's not entirely true. We actually have one example of him taking a nap. It even says he puts his head on a pillow. Uh, he lies down on yeah. a boat on a, on a cushion. But yeah, Jesus has some rhythms in his life that are really interesting. There's a there's a word that I would love to see pop through. Um, we translate it as desolate places yeah. or wilderness, but the word is eremos. It's where we get the word uh, hermit from. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is constantly retreating alone into the eremos, the wilderness, to spend right. time with his father. Amen. And he's like a he's like a boxer. He kind of bobs and weaves in and out. Yeah. And he practices Sabbath. And uh, there's a number of things that he does that actually keep him moving at a sustainable pace, because otherwise. Yeah, he would have physically got fried. And yeah. he had a mission, and we have a mission, and we need to make sure we get there sustainably. Amen. Jared Brock, thank you so much for coming back on the show. It's been a delight once again. Thank you. All right, Jared Brock has been my guest. His book is A God Named Josh, Uncovering the Human Life of Jesus Christ. We'll take a break and be right back.
Jump in your car. Yeah. What's for dinner? Hey. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. One of my favorite things to do is study God's Word with my friends, and I'm so glad to have Dr. Greg Heddington join the program again. He is taking us on a study of the book of Daniel. We're all the way up to Daniel chapter 4. That's what the teaching is today. Greg, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Bill, and welcome to these. This is our sixth lesson in our series on Daniel, which is entitled, God Humbles the Proud. And yes, we will be looking at chapter 4. This is a unique chapter in Scripture because it's an autobiographical account which was prepared by King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the great and powerful king of Babylon, and distributed throughout his kingdom. And according to scholars, this narrative is an official royal document written by the king as well as to a third person who's his narrator. And the fact that Nebuchadnezzar would openly admit his pride and we'll find out his temporary insanity, his beastly behavior, and then gives glory to the God of Israel for his recovery. It's just truly a remarkable thing. And he learned an important lesson the hard way, just as we often learn it the hard way today, which is pride goes before destruction, which is right out of Proverbs 16, verse 18. So now, some scholars believe that a number of years may have elapsed between chapters 3 and 4. Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon are enjoying a time of peace and security. After defeating all their enemies and after completing his extensive building projects, he's able to rest and enjoy all that he's accomplished. Once again, God, in his grace, uses a dream to communicate a critical message to the king. So let's look at the event. Also, let's remember in the ancient world, dreams were very important to everyone who received them, because they just figured this would be a message from God. So if you're taking notes, Roman number one, the plot of chapter four. King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream in which he sees a huge tree that feeds and shelters many animals and birds. Next, he hears an angel command that the tree be chopped down, its branches and leaves cut off, its fruits scattered, and the stump banded with iron and bronze. Hmm. Then a command from an angel announces that someone will live like a beast for seven periods of time before he's restored. Nebuchadnezzar, as it says in verse 5, is terrified by the dream and commands the wise men of his kingdom to interpret the dreams, but once again they are baffled. Now after the experience of the first dream back in chapter 2, when the wise men failed so miserably, you would think that Nebuchadnezzar would bypass his advisors and call Daniel in immediately. But it seems that in both dreams, Daniel is kept apart from the wise men, even though, according to verse 9, Daniel is referred to as the chief of the magicians. Now, Daniel holds a lofty position in the government, which is probably somewhat akin to our Secretary of State. It seems when the dream is interpreted, uh, by Yahweh, it is to remind, well, by Daniel, of Yahweh, it's to remind the king and the reader of Scripture that the wisdom of this world is futile and only God can give the truth about living. Again, the central point and title of this lesson is God Humbles the Proud. Now, we're going to pivot, one of my favorite words, we're going to pivot for a few minutes from this strange dream that Nebuchadnezzar has and talk about a common worldview which many people have today 
and that will be represented by the philosophy of a man who's had great influence on many people over the years. And that man is none other than the 19th century German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, and that's N-I-E-T-Z-C-H-E. Maybe some of you read Nietzsche in school. So, Roman numeral two, Nietzsche and Nebuchadnezzar. Nietzsche has always been popular in academic circles for years, and his writings have had a profound influence on Western thinking, and he represents a popular philosophy today. Nietzsche was anti-God, anti-Christian, and did not believe in objective truth. Instead, he believed that humans can shape their own personal philosophy to be whatever they like, and that people can perfect themselves through effort. It's no surprise that Nietzsche is especially popular among university professors even today, because although 81% at least of the American population believe in God, only about 35% of American college professors are certain about their belief that there is a God, and that's according to Pew Research. So therefore, these professors consider the teachings of Nietzsche to be as legitimate as any other godless philosophy, and that's the way many people think today. In other words, Nietzsche's belief in no objective or absolute truth means anyone can take some ideas from here, add a few more from there, mix it all together, and they create a personal philosophy or religion based on nothing other than one's own opinion. And that's how many people live their lives in the Western world with no ultimate accountability that anyone to anyone. That is, until that day when we know there will be a final judgment for all people, as the book of Revelation points out. So, Bill, we're in Daniel chapter 4. I love that. Dr. Greg Heddington is my guest. We're continuing a study. I, this might be episode number 5 or 6 in our study of Daniel, but we're in chapter 4. If you just joined us, we're... Uh, I, I love this study, Greg. Let's get back. Thanks. Oh, well, Nietzsche's also known for his memorable maxims, of which the most often quoted is this one. That which does not kill me makes me stronger. Perhaps you've heard of that. I have. How would the Jews in Babylon, who were faithful to Yahweh, how would they respond to that one? Well, the three men who were put in the furnace showed the world that whether or not their God allowed them to be killed they would remain faithful to the Lord. And we must look at ourselves every day and ask the question, am I living out the faith I say I believe with integrity? Because after all, you only know what somebody really believes one way. That's by watching their feet. Watch what they do. It's not easy because even if we do not verbalize our faith, our righteous behavior can sometimes make people think we are peculiar. Now, I know I'm peculiar, and I don't aspire to be a peculiar, but as I try to live for Jesus, I know I'm making some people uncomfortable because the cross of Christ is offensive to many people. Why is that? Because the cross exposes our need for the Lord and for our sinfulness and the problems we have with sinfulness, and we need help. Roman numeral two, happiness, question mark. When we speak the truth of the gospel, even if we speak it lovingly, there is a good chance that it will be misunderstood because the bad news that is that we are sinful, and a lot of people do not want to hear they're sinful. But the truth is we are much worse than we ever thought we were, and so this other person we talk to may be offended and not even understand 
ultimately the good news that God's grace is, in fact, much greater than we could ever imagine. Now, an obvious problem with a do-it-yourself religion is that most people just want to be happy and not listen to a, a buzzkill that they might be sinners because they would think, isn't it just those other people who sin? Or, as Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, that which we call sin in others, we call experiment in ourselves. Hmm. Let me say it again. That which we call sin in others, we call experiment in ourselves. In other words, we don't believe our sin is as serious for us as it is for others. So what about this idea of happiness and making that the priority in life? Listen to the response about happiness from one of our most thoughtful followers of Jesus. Here's what he said. I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. That's from C.S. Lewis. Now, if you were to ask him, then why do you believe? He would reply, because it's true. So back to Nietzsche, who represents so many people. Another of his aphorisms that applies to Daniel and his three buddies, although it would not apply to Nietzsche himself, is this one. He who has a why to live can bear almost any how. He who has a why to live can bear almost any how. Now, we've seen or read about people that have held on to a purpose for living who are able to survive seemingly unimaginable circumstances, whether it's making it through concentration camps, we've heard stories about that, or surviving under the rubble of a collapsed building for days. Sadly, Nietzsche never discovered a why that is a reason to live, and yet his statement is still true. As we look at Nebuchadnezzar, who's a contender for (laughs) most narcissistic ruler of the ancient world, we consider another quotation from Nietzsche which reflects a similar conclusion to how Nebuchadnezzar would have summed up his life, which was 25 centuries earlier. Nietzsche wrote this, If there is a God, how can I bear not to be God? Well, with thinking like that, it's no surprise that Nietzsche ended up at Uh, really in a tragic way of living, a very disturbed man. In his last 11 years of life, he suffered a mental breakdown, uh, which will sound a lot like Nebuchadnezzar when we get to that. And he was so debilitated that his mother and sister had to care for him for the rest of his life. At the very end, it is said that he spent most of his time talking to his horse. Now, before we're too critical of Nietzsche, let's remember that when one believes in no absolute truth, then one becomes law unto themselves, and they believe they can live without responsibility to anyone or anything. And I cannot imagine what it would be like living without faith in our in our loving and gracious creator of all things, who knows everything about us, even what we're thinking, and yet has made it possible for us to know him as our Lord and Savior. And we've seen in earlier lessons how the Apostle Paul explains what it is the will of God is for us. First Thessalonians 5.16 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. But preceding those words, we must remember who is the object for our faith. And Jesus makes it real plain. In John 6:40, he says, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him, and that word believe means to trust, to commit to, to put your weight down on, everyone who believes and looks to the Son, will have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. 
Bill, I think this might be a good time for a break. I think you are absolutely right. Greg Heddington is my guest. We're continuing our study in the book of Daniel. We're in chapter four. If you missed any of this, always go to the beginning and hear it from the start. You don't want to miss any of this. We'll be right back. During the break, you grabbed your Bible if you didn't have it before and opened it to Daniel chapter 4. Dr. Greg Heddington is my guest. He's our Bible teacher for this series in Daniel, and I am loving this, Greg. Let's uh, let's pick up. Bill, thanks for mentioning that. Yeah, you're going to want to read chapter 4. It's, it's much more fascinating than what I'm even saying about it, but we are talking about the sin of pride and how it is the mighty King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, one of the greatest rulers in the world at that time about his pride. So, uh, when I was a teenager uh, and I committed my life to Jesus, I thought, you know, God's got a pretty good deal when he got me. Well, (laughs) to to say the least, that was youthful arrogance. And I had no idea how much I had to be humbled in order to serve him. But the Lord did humble me and continues to do so because of his grace. The definition of grace is God doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. I I like that. Let me say it again. Grace is God doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. To live for the Lord is a joy and a struggle, but it helps to know just what we are up against because there are two general types of sin. Number one, there's the sin of commission. That is when we actively do what Scripture tells us that is not God's plan for us to do. And then, number two, there's the sin of omission when we omit what God would have us do. Now, our central theme today is God opposes the proud. So let's look at Roman numeral three, a sin of commission. One definition of pride is, this is right out of the dictionary, pride is an exaggerated idea of one's importance. As we return to the plot of Daniel 4, we see that pride will be Nebuchadnezzar's downfall. The king has asked his court magicians for their interpretation of his dream, and again, they're baffled, so he turns to Daniel once more, who courageously interprets the dream correctly. He tells the king that God is speaking to him and telling the king that he must give credit to God for all of his wealth and power and know that God is ruler over all men and kingdoms, and if he does not practice righteousness and give mercy to the oppressed, then he will become like an animal for, quote, seven periods of time and live in the fields with the animals. Well, we don't know the king's reaction, but our story picks up one year later, and Nebuchadnezzar is still filled with pride for all he says he's accomplished by himself. Now, again, Daniel had told the king to repent, which means to change your mind, acknowledge your pride, and turn away from pride. And as verse 25 says, and know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whom he will. So Daniel gives the king an entire year to heed the warning and to repent, but the king's pride had so gripped his heart that he would not submit to the Most High God. And as Proverbs 3.34 says, God opposes the proud, 
but gives grace to the humble. Now, we'll see what happens to the king in just a minute. But first, here's a quiz. What was it that transformed God's most glorious angel, named Lucifer, into the creature from where all evil originate, whose name is Satan? I'm going to say... What, what, what transformed Lucifer? I'm going to say pride and conceit. You got it. Scripture says it was a sin of pride, and you can check it out in Isaiah 14, verses 12 to 15. Very good, Bill. You passed on that one. Thank you. So, thank you. And it's interesting, in that Isaiah 14 passage, the names of Nebuchadnezzar and Lucifer are implied interchangeably. Now, we've read in Scripture, we know the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's Psalm 145, verse 8. And sometimes we hedge our bets on that one, but when the time comes for the Lord to act, after he has waited patiently for years, God's justice becomes very swift all of a sudden. At least that's what appears to us. Here's an example. In the days of Noah, God gave the people of the world, think of this, he gave the people 120 years to turn from their sin and to turn toward their God. 120 years. But because of their pride, which is so difficult to overcome for so many people, they refuse. And what happens? The flood comes. Another example, after the crucifixion of Jesus, in which the Jewish leaders had been accomplices, of course, the Romans were in there too, but the Jewish leaders had been part of it, God gave Jerusalem and the Jews almost 40 years of grace to repent. But because of pride, they refused, and the Romans destroyed the city and the Jewish temple in 70 A.D. So, knowing that, think of how long God has now been suffering with this present age in which we live. As Second Peter 3.19 says, God is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should repent. And then Peter continues and says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. Now, back to our story. So as the prideful words are still on the lips of Nebuchadnezzar, and as our text reads in Daniel 4, he's walking on the roof of his building, looking over his great empire. And from there, he can see one of the ancient wonders of the world, which is the great hanging gardens. He is just filled with pride, and he's talking about it. So as the prideful words are still on the lips of Nebuchadnezzar, that all the great successes he's accomplished have been solely because of his greatness, Nebuchadnezzar suddenly begins to change. And as verse 16 says, his mind became like that of an animal. Now, since the king had been beastly in his heart and in his behavior, God allows his beastly nature to be revealed openly to everyone. Nebuchadnezzar instantly began to suffer from the psychological disorder known as boanthropy, mm. starting B-O-A and boanthropy, in which a human behaves like and believes that, in fact, they are a bovine, that is, an ox or a cow. Oh. Now, here's a slight digression here, but... Bill, again, we're in chapter 4 of Daniel. I love that. Dr. Greg Heddington is my guest as we are studying this book of Daniel, and I hope you are studying the way Greg encourages us to study, is to get a notebook and a pencil 
and organize yourself because when you take notes and you do it in a methodical way, you always learn so much more. So I appreciate your encouraging uh, us to study that way, Greg. Well said. Well, there's a slight digression from boanthropy, but there is another mental and physical illness called lycanthropy, which people believe and behave as if they're wolves. Oh, wow. This is where the idea of a werewolf began. And of course, you may have seen some of those grade B Halloween movies about werewolves, even as there is historical precedent for us when in the 15th and 16th centuries in Europe, there were localized outbreaks of lycanthropy in which people believed that they were wolves. Wow. Now, uh, this happens to Nebuchadnezzar, boanthropy, and for seven periods of time, we don't know if that's days, weeks, or months, no matter what, if you act like an animal, it's going to be pretty humiliating. So he, let's say he acts like a cow. It's either a cow or an oxen. Of course, in modern terms, we would say he had mad cow disease. Okay, it's a little humor in case... I liked it. I liked it. it. Well, you got it. Thank you. Oh, by the way, what is the definition of a farmer? The answer is a man outstanding in his field. (laughs) Now, Nebuchadnezzar certainly went from being a man outstanding in his field to a man outstanding in the field as God humbled him. Now, the other type of sin we've talked about, general type of sin, this one is Roman numeral four omission. We've talked about commission, but omission is when we do the things the Lord has told us to do, but we don't do it. That's mm-hmm. the sin of omission. And it may be a greater sin than the sin of commission, because omission is saying no to what we know the Lord has commanded us to do. And when we read and understand what the Lord wants us to do in Scripture, and we don't obey it, we might be deceived into thinking, it's okay, I don't... Maybe God doesn't really want me to do that because I can substitute something else. I'll just read more scripture. I'll get more information. Well, the truth is, if we do not know what God wants us to do, why try to study more scripture? Because we may not follow that command either. So that's the sin of omission. What's an example? Well, there were hundreds of verses that command us to care for the poor, the oppressed, the exploited, the forgotten, because God tells us he is their protector and defender. In the Old Testament... We know there were thousands of slaves who were used as simple tools to do the work of building projects for the kings. And Nebuchadnezzar did the same thing. And they were godly kings, but they were, um, there were other people who would consider godly kings, but they also were indifferent to the plight of the poor and the downtrodden. And of course, thousands of slaves died as they were used as human tools. So that indifference is the sin of omission. And we do not have indentured slaves anymore in this country yet. It is, I'm thinking about Dallas, my own city. It's one of the richest cities in the world, but it has the highest rate of child poverty per capital, capita in the, in the nation, which it tells me that the followers of Jesus are committing this sin of omission toward a large segment of the population. Now, we can hum, uh, memorize hundreds of verses, but we do not obey. If we don't obey, what do we know? What's the point of learning more? After looking at the sin of omission from examples like Nebuchadnezzar, who treated the Jews as slaves and committed the sin of commission with his prideful life, uh, it's encouraging to look at a possible positive one. And I'm thinking about the Apostle Paul, who had one of the best theological educations of any Jew in the first century, and it could have been a source of pride for Paul, but as he says in 2 Corinthians 12, God gave him a thorn in the flesh to keep him from becoming proud. Now, we don't know what the physical affliction was, but it was humbling to this great man of God, and because of it, Paul became one of the greatest communicators of our faith that the world has ever known, 
and it is the Lord's mercy to us whenever we receive his humbling so we can become more effective servants for the kingdom. And there is a possible, a positive turn around for King Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4. I know we thought this is really going to be bad. But after these seven periods of time, whatever it was, days or weeks or months, believing he is an ox and living with the other animals outside of the king's court, he makes this conclusion in his biographical account in chapter 4 when he says this, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. And I close with this. I have been humbled by the Lord many times, and it's always resulted from my good. Jesus was the ultimate service servant, as Paul explains in Philippians 2, when he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Pride is the most likely, probably, great sin that we have, and our struggle will always be difficult. But let's remember for Daniel 9, the Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we've rebelled against him. Mm. And, Bill, I think that's enough for today. That's outstanding, Greg. Thank you so much for continuing this teaching in the book of Daniel, and I'll talk to you next time. Thanks so much. Dr. Greg Heddington has been my guest. We'll take a short break and be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.